This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with Brigadier Ian Dobby uh, in Kent. You're not originally from Kent. Where do you come from originally, Ian? Well, I suppose it's Surrey, Camberley. I was born inside the, inside the grounds of the Army Staff College there. Mm-hmm. And uh, just before the war, my father was a student on that course. And uh, in the course of the war years, I think we lived in about five different houses in Camberley. Mm-hmm. My father was killed in 1944 in the Italian campaign. My mother went on living there. And after being a widow for six years, she married a second time into the army. And when my stepfather retired, uh, he and my mother retired to Camberley again. So Camberley, Surrey, really, is the uh, starting point in my mm. life. Mm. And your, so your father, with your father and your family in Surrey, your grandfather, I believe, was born in India. Is that right? Yes, he was uh, in 1879. Uh-huh. I think the Dobby family uh, did a whole century in, in India. He mm. was the, the three generations ahead of him were all uh, serving in India, Navy, Army, Indian, Civil. I think my great-great-great-grandfather was able to say he had 50 descendants who were, well, if he'd been alive, he'd have been able to say it, he had 50 descendants who were serving in the First World War in the Army or Navy. Good gracious. That is extraordinary. It's something which I don't think many people could say. No, I don't think so. Now, your name, of course, uh, your, your grandfather, William Dobby, was highly decorated during the war for extraordinary exploits. Would you like to tell us uh, the story of what, uh, what he did during the war? Yes. Well, he retired in August '39, and uh, then war was declared, and he was a very patriotic man, and he was deeply frustrated that uh, he'd had to retire when he felt it could be of some use to the country. Uh, He'd already fought in the Boer War as a young officer and through Mm. the First World War, and he signed the um, document that stopped the First World War, which was an interesting privilege. And month after month went by, having volunteered his services to the War Office, and nothing happened, till one day he was uh, in uh, his club, which was the United Service Club uh, in London, and a member of the club staff came over to tell him that the uh, CIGS, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Field Marshal uh, Arnside, was there and wished to speak to him. So he went over to speak to him, and uh, Arnside said to him, I want you to go to Malta. My grandfather said certainly, and what capacity was staggered when Ironside said he wanted him to go as governor. And uh, my grandfather was a well-trained officer, and I think almost the next thing he said was, may I ring my wife? But uh, two weeks later, he and my grandmother set off by plane for Malta, and they were able to fly over both France and Germany because the, uh, it was possible then. Italy hmm. wasn't, uh, France and Italy, I should say. Uh, Italy was not yet in the war, and France had not yet been overrun. And so they arrived in April 1940, and uh, they were there for two years. Uh, after they'd been there just over a month, uh, Dunkirk took place, and then Italy came into the war. And so there was practically nothing in the way of friendly territory within a thousand miles of Mm. uh, Malta. Mm. And yet it was so important for the line of communications through to Egypt, going through the uh, Mediterranean. The alternative was to go right around the southern tip of Africa and up through the Suez Canal, Mm. which had taken much longer, and left shipping particularly vulnerable for a long time from U-boats and so on. 
And uh, my grandfather's two years, there were 2,300 air raids on the island. What a lot of people don't realise is that Malta got the Blitz before London. 2,300 air Air raids raids in two years. Now, the Blitz in London, I believe we had 300 nights. So 2,300, that's an extraordinary number. Well, Sicily was only 60 miles away where the Axis airfields were. And so they could each plane, uh, plane could get three runs a day, really, oh, over that gracious. short distance. And Malta was grossly uh, ill-equipped to defend itself from one thing or another, and completely underrated uh, by the Germans. It would have been, could have been invul- vulnerable to a number of things: uh, blockade. Uh, through some people thought, thought um, are amazed that the parachute landing wasn't done on Malta, mm. although that tactic was in a fairly elementary state at that time. The Germans used it in Crete, uh, but they didn't uh, in, in Malta, and uh, it was really an astonishing achievement uh, that the Lord enabled my grandfather to hold the confidence of the people of Malta through that time, those uh, two years. Mm. And uh, at the Churchill got him out just in time. His health went after two years of terrific strain, uh, but not before the king had awarded Malta the George Cross, oh. which was the first of only two times uh, a British sovereign has awarded that uh, particular decoration uh, to a group of people. Mm. Yes. I believe the George Cross is the highest honour you can give not to, to a non-military person. Is that the case? Uh, yes. Extraordinary. Uh, it would be, yes. And so, and your father, you say, the Lord did something. This. Your father was, a, your grandfather was a believer. Uh, he was a definite believer and he held, uh, it was known that he held prayer meetings in his uh, residence, the palace at St. Anton, uh, after dinner, uh, guests were invited to stay while he prayed for the situation in Malta. Mm. It was an absolutely open testimony. And what was really, I think, so wonderful is that Malta, which has been described, the people of Malta were described at that time as more British than the king and more Catholic than the Pope. My grandfather wasn't an Anglican. He was a free churchman. He was in the Brethren. Mm. And therefore, from a sort of uh, ecclesiastical point of view, you'd thought he'd been as distant as possible uh, from, uh, from the Roman Catholic population. But he held the confidence uh, of them right up to and including the archbishop, who spoke very, very generously. The, the archbishop was quoted as saying that he had read of the saints in the past, how when they were praying, a wonderful mystical view came o- over their face. And he said, I've seen it only once in my lifetime, and that is in the present governor. Goodness. He was wonderfully supported by Churchill, and uh, there was a well-known statement that Churchill made, I think it was in the House of Commons, and he's speaking about the situation in the Mediterranean, and he turned and focused on the governor of Malta, who he referred to as that remarkable man, General Dobby, a Cromwellian figure at a key point, fighting with his Bible in one hand and his sword in the other. Goodness me, what an extraordinary testimony. How mm. wonderful and how rare that we hear of Christians occupying a position in which they display such Christian character that it establishes such momentous events. What an extraordinary and wonderful story and accolade. So you were born into a believing family, but your your father was not around while you were growing up. Not very much. Uh, I was five when my father was killed. Um, But almost my last memory that I have of him, he was back on leave in January 44. 
I went into his dressing room after breakfast and he was kneeling at a bed there. His Bible may have been open at his head, I'm not sure about that. He looked up and he saw his wayward young son and he took me firmly but gently by the shoulders, pushed me out of the room and said, never interrupt Daddy when he's saying his prayers. Never interrupt Daddy when he's saying his prayers. Wow. And that is virtually the last memory I have of my father. He was a believer. Mm. The gospel had come into my family in the 1840s in India when a Swiss-German missionary by the name of Samuel Habeck over three afternoons led my great-great-grandfather to faith in Christ on Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. And Bishop Stephen Neal, in his well-known book, The History of Missions, says that Habeck, uh, his, his uh, vocabulary in the English language was only about 500 words. And uh, that, that ancestor's brother was in the same battalion, the 39th uh, Madras Native Infantry, and his wife and then he were also converted. And of those two brothers, the daughter of the first married the son of the second. So my, if you can follow this, my grandfather was the child of first cousins. <laughs> and it is very difficult to identify male descendants from those two brothers, I think in particular, who have not come one by one, to faith in Christ ah. as well, for which, I mean, we are deeply grateful for mm. what the Lord has done in our family. Mm. And, and Hapik, what was the nationality of Hapik? The... He was a Swiss German. He came from Baal in Switzerland. Mm. It was the Swiss-German uh, mission in, in India, mm. ostensibly for the natives of India. Mm. But ha a lot of Hapik's wonderful uh, ministry and work uh, was done uh, among British Army officers. Mm. That battalion, uh, every officer professed conversion uh, in the end, I believe, and the mess went teetotal. Drink was a terrible problem in many places in India at that time. And uh, what is interesting is that at that time of my two great-great-grandfathers being led to Christ by him was that there were... Uh, there was a shortage of money in the mission and uh, Habeck and his colleagues got a uh, signal or, or a letter from Baal saying that their uh, stipends were going to be reduced uh, substantially, I think probably to about half. Mm. And momentarily he was tempted to chase rupees. <laughs> But he was driven by a biblical principle, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Mm. And at the end of that year, not only had there been this little revival among British Army officers, but the books balanced as well. Gosh, what a wonderful story. Reminds you of something from Hudson Taylor, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, so you, you yourself, early memories of Christian integrity prayer, devotion, and so on, and the gospel. Uh, do you remember how you came to understand the gospel yourself? Well, yes. Uh, my grandfather had a degree of access to me, which I think he mightn't have done had my father lived. And I used to, quite often in the holidays, have a couple of days with him and my grandmother up in London. And they were very kind and indulgent. They would take me around the great uh, sites of London, like Madame Tussauds and the Zoo and Tower of London, all these sort of things. And there was a particular evening when my grandfather came into my room and said, before I turn the light out, why don't we uh, read a few verses from the Bible together? Well, a Christian mistress at my first school had made us learn a number of key verses off by heart, including the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks of two houses, one built on rock and the other on sand. The wind and storms occur, and the one founded on rock survives, and the one on sand doesn't. Hmm. 
And after my grandfather and I had read those verses, he turned to me and said, do you know what's meant by the rock? And uh, I, I talked utter nonsense. I was only seven. I didn't really have a clue. And he explained it was a picture of Christ and that we had to build the house of our lives, so to speak, on that sure foundation. And uh, then he followed uh, this up by saying, uh, do you know how to become a Christian? And I felt rather uncomfortable, even at the age of seven, because in my own home, that sort of question actually would have been rather off limits. Mm -hmm. But I said yes, and he pursued me and said, how? Mm. And the answer I gave, which I recall to this day, feeling rather embarrassed, was you've got to go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers, be kind to people. And sitting at the end of my bed, my grandfather was shaking his head. He said, oh, no. He said, those are all things a Christian does. How do you become one? And I hadn't got a clue. And he said, all you have to do is to ask him. And as he said it, it seems strangely right. And I think he then went on to explain the cross. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement uh, would have been part of that. Uh, But uh, I couldn't understand that uh, as a boy of seven. But I do recall my grandfather turning to me and saying, have you done that? And I felt absolutely terrible that I wasn't a real Christian. And I burst into tears and said, no. He said, but is it what you want to do? And I said, yes. And so as grandfather and grandson that night, we knelt down by my bed and he prayed a simple prayer of commitment to which I spluttered, uh, amen, at the end. I wish I could say there was wonderful assurance that followed. There wasn't. And in fact, I'm deeply ashamed of my uh, teenage years and so on. They were dreadful in all sorts of ways. And uh, it wasn't really until I was 22, a, uh, by then a young officer, and I'd started to move into Christian circles by then, a year in which virtually every, every area of life went wrong, and it involved deep repentance, and uh, I don't find this easy to say, restitution in some matters. Uh, the last Sunday in August 1961 at home, feeling very discouraged, reading my Bible, I read that wonderful promise of Christ, in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Mm. And as I read that verse, the sense of release and forgiveness I had was something I had never had before. Mm. Inevitably, I asked myself how one puts those two events together doctrinally, the incident with my grandfather as a boy of seven, and I'd taken the step on other occasions in between, sort of reinforcing it or whatever, uh, until that time in uh, August 61 and I think I I would put it like this that Jesus once described beginning the Christian life to a man called Nicodemus as being born again Mm. that just as we needed a physical birth for physical life so we needed a spiritual birth for spiritual life and I would say that I was spiritually conceived with my grandfather and Mm. actually born again at 22. Mm, Fascinating it's fascinating but the central part Jesus and the cross. Mm. Fantastic. And and you continued in a, a military career. Yes, I served for 35 and a bit years uh, in the army, and uh, all these years afterwards, I still miss it. Mm. Uh, I miss the soldiers as much as I miss the officers. Mm. Uh, it was, a, I think, a fairly typical military career for somebody uh, of my age. I did 15 years altogether in Germany in one way or another. The great British army of the Rhine was very much the focal point in the days of the threat from the Warsaw Pact and so on. I had two years with Arabs in the Gulf and I had two tours in Ulster 
where we were in the infantry role, actually. And uh, I wouldn't have missed those two tours for anything. Mm. Um, I'm very thankful that I had wonderful answers to prayer and promises from Scripture coming at me at crucial times. Mm. And uh, on both tours, I'm glad to say we neither took a life nor did I lose anybody. Mm. And we did preserve law and order mm. in those parts of Ulster at that time. Mm. So I'm deeply thankful for that. Yes, yes. I had the awesome and wonderful privilege of leading a dear friend to Christ who then went to study at uh, Sandhurst and went and served in uh, the Middle East. He described how um, uh, he, he hadn't lost anyone yet. He was a young lieutenant. But he had, for their last operation, uh, one of his men came to him and said, uh, he said, boss, he said, uh, no one's died yet. Do you think we should write a letter to our families just in case? Apparently superstition had got hold of the, mm-hmm. of, the, of the men. And my friend said, no, look, this is what I'm finding helpful. I'm reading the Psalms every morning. And he read to them, though a thousand fall at my left and 10,000 my right, yet I will trust in you, O Lord. And we see the, uh, an awesome picture of how the gospel changes a man. And through that, there were seeds sown in these other men, mm-hmm. which is uh, something which most of us know very little about. But you've been in, in situations you've, and you've managed to see the promises of God vivid and life-giving. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, you're also fascinated by history. The first time I heard you speak mm-hmm. was uh, an extraordinary talk by William, about William Tyndale, mm-hmm. uh, one of the great heroes of British church history. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it you first came in contact, or how, how did you come to become fascinated with uh, Tyndale? Well, I had read uh, as a young officer a two-volume production by the Swiss-German historian of the 18th, 19th century, J. H. Mel Daubigny, called The History of the Reformation in England. I think it's an abridged version of his uh, History of the Reformation in Europe. And in this two-volume book, books by um, Mel Daubigny, uh, Tyndale inevitably features fairly prominently. And the way in which the English Bible was produced for us against such stout opposition and with such quality, mm. uh, and what a battle it was that this wonderful godly man, William Tyndale, was raised up uh, for this purpose. Mm. And... Uh, I remember years ago, Arthur Bryant used to do an article in the uh, Illustrated London News in which he put forward various candidates for the all-time great Englishman. I think my candidates are Alfred the Great, William Tyndale and Churchill. (laughs) Uh, But I definitely put Tyndale in it, and he laid down his life to give the people of England the Bible, Mm. which has been such a blessing. Indeed. And... Not only, of course, was it a blessing to our country spiritually, but also culturally. Mm. I know Professor David Daniels at London University reckoned that Tyndale had a greater influence on the English language than Shakespeare. Yes, yes, which is something from a professor of English. It is. Because we may well have our opinion, but here's a man who, when you read David Daniels' biography of Tyndale, you, you realise this is a man who understands language. Mm. And he's, uh, he's, he, his respect for Tyndale is very, very helpful. I heard John Piper say his biography of Tyndale is the greatest book on the Reformation. And you think of the effect of a man who invents words that we now use every yes. day. Yes, he coined you know, a lot. Yes. Words like loving kindness. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Atonement. Yeah. But again, not seeking to get an accolade as, a, as an academic, but seeking to serve the church. Mm-hmm. The plowboy. Yeah. 
Now, living as a Christian uh, in the military, having seen uh, challenges, could you describe some things which uh, were, were you have seen? You've seen Christ, and you've seen the the Word of the Lord sustaining you and helping you when there was, as you're describing from your grandfather, there was no friendly face for a thousand miles away. Uh, I'll talk about my own personal experience. Mm. Well. Those two tours in Ulster were the only two times I was actually on uh, consistent operations. I did see live rounds fired in anger once in a, in a short um, uh, scrape in uh, Sharjah in the Union of Arab Emirates following the assassination of the Sheikh of Sharjah. But that was all over in a, a very short time. and I never personally came under fire myself. But the two tours uh, in Ulster in different ways, were very precious to me. Um, the day I heard I was going to go to Ulster for the first time, in my morning daily Bible reading, uh, I read the verse in one of the later chapters of Genesis, I think it's chapter 48, where Joseph is dying and says to his family, God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. And as I had read a year before when I took over command of that squadron, the promise to Joseph, but God was with him, and had claimed that for myself during the two years I'd be commanding that squadron, I was surprised at this verse, which is in some way rather similar, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. And I thought, I wonder why I've been given that today. Well, mm. after lunch I knew, because the other squadron commanders and I were sent for by the commanding officer to tell us we were going to go to Ulster in the infantry role. Mm. And so I was never, ever in doubt of mm. my own safety. Never. And uh, although I had to deal with over 100 bomb incidents of one sort or another, the vast majority of which were hoaxes, but you have to go through the same procedure of clear cordon control and so on. I was never in doubt about my own safety. And about a month before we left Ulster, my commanding officer came down to see me one evening to say that the tip had come from an IRA source that um, uh, they were going to try and take out a soldier at a checkpoint. Well, we were guarding people who were searching everybody who came into the city centre at Londonderry and the Strand Shopping Precinct, which runs on the west side of the foil to the north of the city. And uh, my soldiers were working a 17-hour day then and uh, standing on some of these checkpoints, guarding the searches for six hours uh, at a time. And my admiration for the British soldiers has always been very, very high, but never more so than after an Ulster tour. Mm. And I had no reserves to be able to put mobile patrols out beyond the checkpoints, which might threaten a gunman in his escape. And I remember kneeling down by my bed that night and praying um, because I didn't have the same assurance for the safety of the soldiers that I had for myself. Mm -hmm. I got back into bed without any sense of release and the next morning I had an experience I've only had three times in my life. My waking thought was a verse of scripture, Isaiah fifty-four seventeen: no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Talk about uh, an ideal verse for that moment, it was amazing. And on a Saturday afternoon, shortly afterwards, there was a crack in the distance, a clang on the railings behind where one of my soldiers was standing. We did the follow-up. We didn't find a gunman or the weapon or anything. And about 10 days later, I was privileged to take every man back oh. to Germany. Mm. And as I said goodbye to that squadron, I gave every soldier uh, a New Testament, mm. um, every officer and soldier. Mm. 
And I know certainly two of those who received them have come to clear faith in Christ since. Wonderful, wonderful. Bless God. It reminds me of a story I heard of your grandfather that he... uh, he was at one point guarding the, the place where, uh, was it Gordon's Calvary? Yes, it was. Well, that was what gave me the idea uh-huh. to do this. Uh-huh. And if you saw the, compared the two pieces of writing uh, in the New Testaments that were given to my grandfather's brigade in 1929 and mine to my soldiers in 1976, you would have noticed a similarity. Right. What, what was, do you remember what it was that he wrote to them? He wrote something like this, you were stationed at the place where the central event of human history took place, namely the crucifixion and death of the Son of God. You may read the details in this book uh, and you cannot help being interested, but that interest will turn into something far deeper when you realise that it was for you personally that the Son of God laid down his life here. And reading uh, this book will bring you to such an experience or something like that. And then he signed it. Oh, bless God. It's wonderful. wonderful. Mm. What a heritage. What mm, a heritage. Amazing. Now, you, you have seen an unusual experience of life compared to many who will have heard this. You will have seen, you have family who have seen uh, historic things which have been rooted into the Christian faith. You yourself have proven God in experiences of in your own life and you're someone who has an eye in history what's your advice to people who, who you're seeing uh, in our time well you refer to history there and somebody has said that history is his story and those who don't read it somebody else has said are destined to make it the same mistakes again and I think that's true mm. So I'm always glad that I've had a little bit of an appetite for history. And I've always, I mean, I think the two periods of history in in England that I've really enjoyed reading about were the history of the Reformation and, secondly, the evangelical awakening of the 18th century mm. um, when, spiritually, things in the 1730s in this country were even worse than now. It's yes. difficult to imagine that, but... That was so. And yet then the Lord raises up Whitfield, Wesley and their contemporaries in this wonderful way. And there's a major spiritual restoration which had enormous blessing on the country, not only spiritually but socially as Mm, well. mm. And uh, to read the biographies of these men and how they were raised up uh, uh, at this time Mm. in the teeth of some pretty unsympathetic people in leadership, both culturally and spiritually. Uh, It is a very wonderful story. Amen, yes. And so I suppose that has been my major interest. Mm. Among military people who are Christians, reading John Pollock's biography of uh, General Sir Henry Havelock, who relieved Lucknow in 1857, was one of the early biographies I read, which thrilled me. Uh, Havelock is not particularly well known today, uh, but his statue is next to Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. Mm. And any uh, Victorian city or town that was really established at that time has generally got at least a road or a street or something named after him. Mm. He was brought to faith in Christ by a brother officer on the boat out to India. And the issue that really came through to him with power was the cross, why Christ had died as our substitute and sin-bearer in order that we should never have to bear the penalty of sin and guilt ourselves. And by the time Havelock arrived in Calcutta, he was uh, 
established, really, uh, as a Christian. And he set about sharing his faith with his soldiers uh, in the teeth of criticism from his brother officers, but not from the commanding officer, who fortunately saw uh, the usefulness of Havelock's ministry. Mm. James Gardner, the young officer who brought Havelock to faith in Christ, was then had to be invalided back to England. But he had gone out to India just long enough to win this key man for Christ. Mm. And Havelock's promotion and so on was, uh, through prejudice, uh, held back on one thing and another. But his sheer military excellence on operations and one thing and another meant that really he could not be sidelined. Mm. And ultimately, when the mutiny occurred uh, in 1857 in the northern part of India, Havelock was put in charge of the column, which was to relieve it. Mm. His son, who was his ADC, won a Victoria Cross at Cornpore on the way in, and uh, he had uh, bitterly resisted his father's Christian faith, Ah. had no desire to share it at all. But seeing his father and the way he was sustained and kept in that operation through to Lucknow, uh, that resistance was broken. Gracious. And the story ends with Havelock the father dying in his son's arms, but the two in fellowship. Gosh, extraordinary. And this was written in a great biography by John Pollock. Yes, it's called The Way to Glory, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, a ter- it's a jolly good read. <laughs> it's the best read uh, of a Christian officer that I've ever read because it deals with the complete Havelock, militarily, spiritually, and indeed domestically. Mm. And the statue at, uh, next to Nelson's column, as you look at Nelson's column, is it to the left or the right? It's to the right. If you've got Whitehall uh, behind you mm-hmm. and you look at Nelson, there is Havelock uh, to, the, to the right. Yes. How extraordinary wonderful to have a believer there in such a prominent place. No. Well, it's been wonderful to have this time with you. Thank you so much for sharing this uh, time with us, Ian. And if anyone's listening who hasn't yet heard it, look up one of... Brigadier Ian Dobby's talks on William Tyndale. It will do you good as it has done me good. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. Thank you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.